Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Rene Belderbos. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Rene as a person. Professor Belderbos is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Rene Belderbos is a professor at KU Leuven, Belgium, at Maastricht University and at UNU Merit, which is in the Netherlands. His research focuses on innovation strategies, international business strategies of multinational firms, location strategies, global knowledge sourcing, intellectual property rights and innovation. He has published widely in our top journals, served as an associate editor of Global Strategy Journal, editorial board member of the Strategic Management Journal and JIPS. He has been consultant to the European Commission, the OECD, the Flemish, Belgian, Dutch governments, and the National Institute of Science and Technology Policy in Japan. In 2019, he received the JIPS Silver Medal for his contributions to JIPS. Thank you, Rene, for joining us. Thank you. Rene, how did you uh, start? What did you want to become uh, when you were a child? Uh, yeah, not an economist, I'm afraid. Um, I think I had uh, two dreams. One was to become an archaeologist, uh, so digging in the mud to find more uh, evidence on what happened in history. Uh, and the second one was to uh, become an astronomer, uh, looking into history even uh, longer ago uh, and uh, the birth of the universe. Um, but finally, I realized on the one hand that the archaeologist profession was not so attractive to me because I did not have the patience probably to dig through uh, with a teaspoon <laughs> to dig through uh, <laughs> cubic meters of, uh, of soil. And for an archaeologist, I, uh, my physics proved to be um, um, yeah, not the strongest uh, subject in high school, proved to be too weak. So nothing came of this, uh, these ideas finally. Where did you grow up? Uh, in the Netherlands, uh, I spent my youth. And uh, about uh, the progress towards academia, in, especially in international business, how did you choose academia? And within academia, how did you choose IB? Yeah, so indeed, these are two different uh, questions, you could say. Um, and for me, there were, were two different topics. Um, I first chose to become a researcher, to enter academia. Uh, and only later, I, I chose to be an IB scholar. So um, if we, I start with the first part, uh, choosing scholarship, choosing academia. Um, I think to really, the, the really... Uh, conviction that I should become uh, a scholar only came later in my PhD trajectory. Um, I started my PhD research actually in, in Japan because I received a, a scholarship from the Japanese Ministry of Education to do research in Japan. Um, I wrote a research proposal for this uh, and I was very interested in, in finding out about the Japanese economy and Japanese multinational firms. But at that time, I was a bit reluctant to accept an offer uh, of a PZ position, um, maybe to preserve my freedom um, at that time. Um, and only once I 
started to do my research and uh, came to enjoy that and noticed that I enjoyed that a lot, I, um, I accepted the PhD position. Um, so at the start, I did not have really the ambition to become a, a scholar. Um, but by doing research, I learned that this was uh, the, the vocation for me. Um, maybe it's also interesting to note that uh, my research in Japan was actually also much of a coincidence because um, I got to Japan first in 87 um, when I wanted to do a traineeship abroad and I applied with the uh, student exchange organization, ISEC. And I wanted to go to the US uh, to do some traineeship there. But uh, the program, and that's a kind of computer program, matched me to a position at the employer's organization in Japan. So just by sheer coincidence that I ended up in, in Japan. And, uh, and finally, then I got interested in Japan so much that I applied for the scholarship and uh, continued to do research in Japan. And that brought me uh, into the academic career. Um, so how, how long did you yeah. stay in Japan? How, how uh, at that time, but the first time, three months in 87 uh, to do my traineeship. And then on the scholarship, about one and a half years. Um, but then I didn't finish my PhD research. I was uh, gathering a lot of data on Japanese multinational firms for my uh, dissertation. So I went back in 92 and 93. And it, all, all in all, I've spent quite a few years in Japan over the past uh, decades. Interesting. Um, so... You still, I still owe you the IB part. I yeah. think that's another story. Um, that has to do a bit with the uh, with my career, basically, or my career possibilities. So um, actually, I'm I'm trained as an economist, um, and I've done work on uh, strategic trade policy, on uh, uh, yeah, strategy research, uh, and from an economics perspective. Um, and I was working at the time, it was in the late 1990s, uh, at SPRU, the Science Policy Research Unit of the University of Sussex in Brighton. It was a great place and intellectually challenging, um, but didn't provide a lot of uh, job security. So uh, we had two young children and we, we desired some economic stability and also schooling possibilities for our children that were not too expensive. So when Maastricht University opened up a vacancy in international business because its uh, yeah, master and bachelor programs were growing a lot, uh, has become a very popular university, I applied um, and I got a job. Um, but of course, that meant that I had to sort of reinvent myself uh, from an e industrial economist that had to become uh, an IB scholar. Um, was not too difficult because... Um, I was schooled as an economist, but in the in industrial organization. And there we look at competition between firms and what happens in industries. Um, maybe from a policy perspective, we look at these issues, but it's still the same uh, firm behavior that we study also in international business. So the step from industrial economy uh, to IB uh, was not uh, that large for me. Um, but I, I still had to adapt. And I must admit that the decision to become an IB scholar was also uh, in, in, an, in a sense an economic decision based on uh, career prospects. Perfect, thank you. Uh, about uh, <clears throat> things that you don't put on your CV that 
people might find interesting about you? Um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe my my situation at home. Uh, I uh, I'm married to a Mexican, um, but a Mexican with Japanese ancestors, <laughs> and I met her in Japan. Uh, so I'll, our children have uh, Dutch, Aztec, Spanish, and Japanese blood. Uh, so my family family life is sort of a multicultural experience. Uh, perhaps not so different from what uh, uh, internationalizing, internationalizing firms experience uh, when they first go abroad. Um, so I have a, a kind of mini IB situation at home. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, regrets? Have you got any regrets? Um, well, academic regrets or, or more in general? Well, is it still a general story or is it an academic story that we're talking uh, personally, about? Personally, I'm interested in the personal regrets section, but uh, if you feel more comfortable with academic regrets, by all means. Uh, no, uh, my, personally, um, I had told myself to, uh, to travel more, uh, to see more countries, to experience more different cultures. Um, and during my uh, stays in Japan, I, I did see Asia quite a bit, but not so much Latin America. So I thought I had planned to travel half a year or a year through Latin America after finishing my dissertation. Um, but well, after finishing my dissertation, I happened to be married and we were expecting our, our first son. <laughs> so uh, nothing really came out of, came of this. And uh, I, I think I have to give it another try uh, after retirement. Um, so that, that's on the personal, uh, more on the personal, in the personal view. Um, in terms of academia, I have not some, a slight regret that I have not pursued uh, more proactively uh, a career partially in the US because the US is a, top location for scholars in academic research with many resources, lots of things are happening there. And I had also some idea that I would uh, spend a couple of years in, in, in the US uh, doing research there. But while well, I found myself drawn to Japan and uh, yeah, it's difficult to focus on two very different countries in, in my career. Um, and I also came a bit to the conclusion that maybe the more individualistic uh, attitude and, and approach in the US is not really so much a good fit uh, for me. Um, I think Europe has more of a balance between my, what I can call care and competition. Uh, it's not only about individual achievements and, and, and competing, but also try to provide a healthy balance between life, uh, yeah, family life and work teamwork and individual achievement. Um, and um, uh, I think I'm, I'm more sort of familiar, I'm more comfortable with the European approach that, than with the US approach. So it, although it I would have liked to spend some years in the US uh, in a position there, um, finally, I, I understand why I did not do so. And I don't really regret it that that didn't happen. But you have a point. It is different, even the tenure process is different in European universities. Some of the uh, British universities, or uh, like INSEAD or French university, um, they do uh, have they have this uh, American system in place. 
but uh, you, you're right. European tenure system is different. Uh, when you were mentioning that you were hired as a PhD, you actually uh, build, start building a career as a PhD student in Europe. And they, they, that's very normal. Uh, mm. Then you mentioned the same, same thing in Japan. Uh, because they actually have a tenure track for each of the students. Uh, okay, uh, about research uh, portion. How do you explain your research and the importance of your research to people who don't read regular, uh, regularly JIPS or SMJ? Uh, what do you do and why is it important? So uh, when I explain it to say uh, laymen or, or yeah. common people, let's say, yeah, I, I would say something that um, I'm, I'm studying what multinational companies are doing, eh? what these large firms that have activities in, in several countries, uh, what they do, how they behave. Uh, for instance, uh, where they invest, where they create employment, but also where they dismiss people and where they withdraw their investments. Um, yeah, if they work with together with universities and support local university research, um, yeah, if they make local economies more vulnerable or if they strengthen local economies, um, and if they correct, uh, yeah, engage in corrupt practices or actually are forces uh, to combat uh, corruption in several countries, um. And this type of research is then important uh, because uh, local and national governments have to understand what multinational firms are doing uh, in order to come up with the right policies to sustain their social and economic goals. Um, because many of many countries are confronted uh, with the powerful uh, nature of multinational firms. Rene, <clears throat> perfect. <clears throat> about MNCs, when you talked about MNCs, mm. I'm curious about um, things that are uh, understudied in international business. What are the things that are neglected, uh, omitted, uh, especially for MNC research or, or IP research? What's, what's your take on it? Um, so maybe one of them is um, the politics uh, recently. Um, the politics of international business um, and political business strategies. I think they have become uh, more important. Um, we see, for instance, the example of uh, Huawei, uh, uh, a key challenger to Apple and Samsung in the smartphone markets and challenger to Ericsson in the infrastructure, telecommunications infrastructure business. Um, but also seen as a possible instrument uh, of the Chinese state and seen as a security risk and therefore denied access to markets and technologies. At the same time, of course, you see that yeah, Western firms have difficulty in China and they face also political interventions there. Um, so it's becoming more and more difficult to understand uh, the nature of uh, the actions of multinational firms uh, in a polarized world uh, without their relationship with, uh, with the countries in which they are active and the political interests of the countries in which they are active. And I think we have not given that uh, a lot of um, attention in, in, in recent research. So we have to bring back the political economy uh, into IB research. 
But, but your point is a bit uh, more specific about uh, politicized firms and not really nationalistic economies or uh, populist economies, but you're talking about firms acting as political agents. Is that it? Is, is well, that firms it? have to take into account the political interest and, uh, and they have to uh, find a balance uh, between the interests of uh, different countries if they want to continue doing business in different countries. Um, and so th that explains, uh, for instance, uh, their investment behavior, but also their performance in markets. Um, and some firms have uh, difficult decisions to make, uh, like if they want to adapt their software uh, in China, uh, in terms of, for instance, making uh, search routines uh, um, not work uh, or uh, allow the search routines to, to bring in censorship of the, uh, in, in China. So these are difficult decisions that firms have to take. Uh, and firms also become like uh, getting to the middle of political co conflicts between countries. Um, so in that sense, um, how firms deal with those pressures and this, these conflicts is an important uh, research topic, I think, for the future. Um, but I think there's something also quite obvious that is uh, uh, in need of more attention, and that is, of course, the climate change and sustainability issues. So, yeah, international business is and global value chains. That is about transport, uh, airports, trade. Um, but also then kerosene, trucks, and CO2 emissions. So IB is, you could say, all about putting pressure on climate and the environment. So would, would you in say a way, that... the entire system of trade and investments may, may need to be rethought, no? And we need local rather than global value change to uh, put less pressure on the environment. So I think that's also a topic that, has not, that we have not really thought through a lot. So that uh, provides for lots of... Uh, um, research opportunities uh, in the future. So you're identifying climate change, uh, sustainability, research in IB. Yeah, uh, yeah I think that is, that is really a, fruit, a fruitful area for uh, research. And that might require uh, more multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary research. And if we want to look at multinational firm strategies and maybe their consequences for of global value chains uh, for the environment, uh, we may need to team up with uh, climate researchers and we need to have metrics to, to see the impact of multinational firms on local economies. Um, so yeah, that, that requires more uh, interdisciplinarity. You're in a unique position actually, Rene. Uh, you mm -hmm. see in the European mentality, the Asian or the Japanese mentality, let's say, uh, over a uh, couple of decades, there is this progression towards a new type of IB research, IB thinking. Uh, about this evolution or culture of uh, IB research evolving into something new, what can you say about the progress uh, from where we were and where we're headed to? Uh, what are we losing along the way? What are we gaining along the way uh, in this uh, evolution? Yeah, I, I see, of course, and, and uh, previous uh, scholars in, in your series also alluded to this. Uh, there is, of course, more um, inclusivity in terms of uh, scholars from many different countries contributing to IB research. 
and publishing in the IB journals. And that's a, a good development. We get more heterogeneity, more different perspectives. Um, yeah, we can compare um, behavior of multinationals, multinational firms in different countries better uh, by having the local perspective from different countries. I also see um, a clear evolution towards use of better methods um, with attention to identification strategies, causality issues, omitted variable biases, and so on. Um, I think this also has then helped to avoid quick conclusions that are not really substantiated. Um, um, it also has increased attention to yeah, the limitations of our research, and that has been taken more seriously uh, over the years in our papers. So that is really also something that I appreciate a lot, the, the culture of more rigor um, and several editorials and papers uh, or methods have uh, contributed to this, I think, in this regard. Um, what I, what, where I find not so much development is in the diversity of the type of uh, research in IB journals. Um, we, I think we are still a bit too much in a straitjacket of uh, papers that need to develop always new theory. Yeah? So we have maybe 500 papers on entry mode choice. So we have 500 theories of entry mode choice. Um, and maybe we need to first make sure which of these theories actually can be replicated, yeah? which tests can be replicated and which theory holds most. Um, so, and then we can build cumulative knowledge we really have established what theories are most powerful. So we need more replication studies. Uh, they are a bit incremental, but I think we need these incremental studies to complement new uh, theory building papers. So we may need more variety in contributions in the IB journals, uh, not only theory building, also explorative studies, replication studies. Uh, phenomenon-based studies. Um, I've been on the board of the uh, Strategic Management Journal, and there, that journal has already made that change, uh, um, allowing more different types of, uh, of contributions to the journal. And GIPS has been maybe surprisingly uh, conservative on this front, and I think it's time to change, uh, to allow more variety in the types of contributions. Okay, thank you. About the advice portion, the mentoring portion, mm. uh, what do you wish you would have known when you were starting out? Things that would have saved you so much time, pain, agony? <laughs> um, yeah, looking back, um, I think I, I would have liked to have known uh, how important it is for good research to have a a department, research department, to be working working in a research department um, with lots of PhD students, postdocs, and faculty interaction to exchange ideas and to collaborate. Um, I found that it's very important to collaborate and to work in a team. But in the early early years of my academic career, I um, I spent in uh, Rotterdam and in. Uh, in Brighton, uh, I worked mostly by myself and um, and I could not do so much and did not learn so much as I could have done, I guess. 
so when I moved to Maastricht, I started to collaborate with more uh, scholars um, and with PC students. But only when I then moved in, in 2000 to, uh, to Leuven, I could really integrate the research group and I could do much more work and learn much more in that setting. So I would say that the, a good PhD program is sort of the lifeblood of a department that uh, has ambitious research agenda, has an ambitious uh, yeah. research agenda. Um, so um, that is, uh, I think, the, the key issue that maybe I would, re would regret with hindsight that uh, um, I I worked a lot by myself in the early years while uh, collaboration is much more interesting and provides for much more learning. You know, there's this thing, it takes a village to raise a child. And I think it's very true for a PhD student. The environment that the PhD student is in is, is quite uh, instrumental in development. Uh, which skills were most difficult to develop during this uh, process for you? Um, yeah, um, I think in my case, uh, it was um, hypothesis building, it was writing. Huh? So um, when I moved from economics, from the economics domain, economics discipline more to the IB field, I had to uh, change uh, the way I write papers, the way I do research, I had to more explicitly build theory and derive hypothesis. Um, and that is a prerequisite to be able to publish in IB journals, but in economics, it's very different, uh, the writing style and, and the importance of theory building. So I think it took me about two years really to master uh, uh, writing papers for IB uh, and to have the transition from the economics discipline to the IB uh, field. Um, so I found that myself, I found uh, quite challenging. Um, but well, in, in general, uh, what you need is uh, a good academic writing uh, and a good research methodology. Um, and those, that skill building should be part of any PhD program. But when you look at junior faculty, and when mm. you look at uh, PhD students, in Europe, in America, uh, elsewhere. Uh, mm -hmm. What are some of the common mistakes that you see across uh, our young colleagues? Things that uh, well, uh, not, not only often. young colleagues make mistakes. I, I make mistakes, but also and, and, and all the senior scholars make mistakes. Um, yeah, so um, I think what I find uh, as a reviewer, no, we, we have to point out mistakes that uh, young scholars or senior scholars, we don't know eh, uh, as uh, in the blind review system, um, what, uh, what mistakes are made. And um, what I find uh, in terms of grounds for rejection of, of a paper that occurs quite frequently is the discrepancy between theoretical constructs that are developed and their measures. Um, so I think it's important to have a very prop, very sort of well-grounded motivation for why the constructs uh, are measured in the way they are measured and, and to convince the reader and the reviewers uh, that they do not pick up other influences than the hypothesized uh, influence. That is um, 
something that I uh, find uh, is problematic in with papers quite often. Um, yeah, I do have one or two other recommendations. Um, yes. If if you want me to continue, yes, please. Um, one thing is that I find a bit troublesome in some of the literature is that uh, maybe because we have a need to always come up with new theories, we see um, actually a new terminology, but for similar concepts that are already known in the theory. And that limits uh, academic progress. It limits cumulative knowledge building. And here maybe an example is the, is the work on offshoring, yeah, which is foreign direct investment, but then mostly investments that are servicing the home market. So a new literature on offshoring uh, has grown, um, but that literature of, often doesn't make, um, it's, not, it's not very aware and doesn't make good citations to the FDI literature uh, because the terminology is different. But yeah, offshoring, if it's uh, based on investments by multinationals, is just the same uh, as FDI, it's one a specific type of FDI, but lots of the earlier literature and the insights got lost because uh, of the new terminology. Um, so it's good to bring on to bring in new insights, uh, and I think the offshore literature has brought in the insight that uh, there are various ways uh, of offshoring, not only through FDI but also through uh, contracts and offshore outsourcing. Um, but if uh, we have to use different terminologies all the time, um, we lose the contact with, uh, with earlier research and we, we don't, do not allow cumulative uh, knowledge building. So that's something that I experienced in, uh, in, in my work and in reading through papers. Um, a third issue that I had is um, um, interviews. So interviews with practitioners. Uh, I think this is very valuable. So I can recommend doing this to be informed about how manager thinks, managers think about issues at hand. Um, but I would warn against taking the views of the managers expressed uh, as at, at face value. Um, especially if the topics are a bit sensitive, there might even be some cognitive dissonance on the part of managers. And it, you can't really uh, avoid eh, doing your own research to really find out what's going on. I can give you two examples. One is uh, the role of tax treatment in foreign investment location uh, decisions. Here managers always say that the, the tax treatment is secondary. Of course, they like lower taxes, but it's not the primary interest. The primary interest is the local infrastructure and, uh, and market po uh, potential. But if I run regressions uh, on location studies, on location decisions, and I take into account all the other factors that are important in, in location decisions, I still find that the tax is a primary and very important determinant. So it's mostly because of political yeah, or presentation issues that managers don't really want to admit that actually tax uh, treatment is a very important driver of, uh, of location decisions. And earlier on in my career, I experienced something similar with uh, research on trade barriers. So I looked at the role of anti-dumping duties on investments by Japanese firms in Europe. Uh, Japanese firms were targeted with anti-dumping duties, and those were uh, uh, 
levied by the European uh, Union to protect their industries. Um, and then I interviewed a couple of Japanese companies and they said, no, 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 uh, we haven't. We know there are anti-dumping duties, but we go to Europe because we want to contribute to the local economy because it's an important market, not so much because of the anti-dumping duties. But when I checked uh, the FDI decisions uh, of these firms, uh, I found that anti-dumping duties had a very big significant impact on their investment strategies. And moreover, once the duties were abolished, I found out that all these investments were uh, became divestments and uh, firms uh, withdrew from their manufacturing investments in Europe. So it was clear that anti-dumping uh, was very important in their decisions. Um, then I heard from a colleague of mine who was a classmate of one of these managers in these companies, I went to the pub with him, uh, I, that uh, after maybe a pint of five or so, only at that moment, the, the manager admitted that actually it was anti-dumping that was uh, really leading to their investment and divestment behavior. Um, so if topics get sensitive, it's very difficult to interview managers and, and get the formally the correct answer. So there's nothing about doing your, nothing better than doing your own research to find out how firms behave. Interesting, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> Renny, for the sake of time, uh, what is a question that I should have asked you about Tevens? Yeah, so I was thinking, you're interviewing mostly senior scholars um, and senior scholars are in a very different position they have tenure uh, compared to junior scholars. So maybe a question would have been uh, um, interesting in terms of uh, how senior scholars keep on being motivated and how their tasks and roles uh, change over time. And uh, then maybe I can reflect a bit on the answer to such a question. Um, yeah. Um, so I've been chair of the hiring and the promotion committee for quite a few years in, in Leuven. Um, and well, then I had to look at sort of the incentive systems for, for scholars and for non-tenured professors, this is clear. There are the, there's the tenure evaluation um, for young assistant professors, there is the or associate professors, there is the promotion possibilities uh, and evaluation. Um, but for tenured full professors, there's not much uh, of extrinsic uh, yeah, incentives of incentives that we can give uh, to them. No, there, there's in, in European schools, there's very little also possible in terms of uh, salary increases uh, or peer evaluations. So for a school and for a department, it's very important to keep the senior scholars motivated and productive. Uh, so how do we do this? And I, yeah, I came to the conclusion that we, there's not much you can do in terms of extrinsic motivation. So when hiring uh, scholars and when giving them tenure, it's very important to look at intrinsic motivation, the curiosity uh, for research. Um, so not necessarily hiring the career tigers that uh, that perform quite well but are more extrinsically motivated but for long-term uh, say performance of the faculty and uh, and uh, the well-being of the department it's important to focus on intrinsically motivated uh, researchers 
let's say, the, the curious among us, um, because they will keep on being motivated to do research even without external incentives. Um, how, how, how do the yeah. uh, European, we're, we're talking about European versus American mm-hmm. senior scholarship, mm-hmm. right? Uh, your points about curiosity, how to keep it alive uh, yeah. for, for the Europeans. Uh, yeah. More specifically, what is more, most actionable? Something that uh, you would need to inject into the system so that they're intrinsically motivated. What would motivate them most? Uh, so, so you mean in terms of senior scholars, there's a lot of, you know, lots of incentives for junior scholars no, to make career and that depends on their performance, um, but n- not so much for senior scholars. So I, so what, what works for me is uh, to be able to work with uh, PhD students and, and, and junior scholars. So um, I, I will say there are two types of tasks uh, and maybe the, the, the types of task uh, shift a bit over the career. Uh, there's the, the exploration, which is research, uh, uh, curiosity driven. And there is the exploitation, which is maybe teaching, uh, using the research insights uh, in, in, in teaching activities. Consultancy, maybe uh, exploiting your knowledge uh, in consultancy and perhaps also administration. Um, and I think senior scholars tend to focus more on the exploitation part than, than on the exploration part. But for me, I find expo- I continue to find exploration very important, um, and I try to combine this with an exploitation role. Um, and I think that really uh, is so because I'm yeah, fortunate to work with uh, young and ambitious people, such as PhD students and young scholars, quite a lot. And that collaboration keeps me curious and keeps me motivated because we can match the yeah, new ideas, methods, and ambitions of, uh, of these young scholars with my broader experience. Uh, um, and I think that's a very good recipe for uh, achieving research that, that is both rigorous and, and relevant. So I hope that I can continue such research for the foreseeable uh, future. For me, that works. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Johnny, for this uh, interesting interview. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you.